movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 309 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the actual 309 episode of the SLS Cast, but it's also the Limber Pine episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that there is a Limber Pine in the world called Twister. It is found in Utah. Its name is Twister. I'm not sure exactly why, but... It has a confirmed birth year of 309. That's right, folks. It's a 1,709-year-old tree. And with that wonderful little bit of arborist knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident sunny employee, Tim. You know, Limber Pine was one of my stripper names back in the day. (laughs) Back in my time in Montrose... Houston, Texas, Limber Pine. Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, a red velvet Limber Pine. Mine was Twister. That was just how it was. <laughs> what song did you dance to? <laughs> oh, I was all Chubby Checker exclusively. Uh, that was the only thing I would dance to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Well, Matthew, I have something else for you to dance to. Uh, What's that? Because it is Christmas time, or, or getting close to Christmas time, am I correct? Is that are we in December still, or are we already oh, in February? Yeah. As we record this evening, it is the eleventh of December. So yeah, we're we're in the the Yuletide season, as it were. Well, there is this company. At least it's an online company. I don't know if they sell their products elsewhere in stores or not, but they're called Archie McPhee. Uh, And this little tagline here is, we make weird, and they make different varietals of candy canes. Matthew, like, what is your go-to candy cane? Is it the classic candy cane? Is it the green ones with the purple stuff in it? Is the cherry candy canes, the bubblegum candy canes even? What is your candy cane go-to? My go-to candy cane, because I am, I'm, I'm weird. I don't like peppermint. So I have always liked the, and that's what I mean by candy cane flavored candy cane. Sure. Peppermint. Oh yeah, absolutely. Peppermint. Yeah. No. Oh sure. Sure. Yeah. I don't like. Yeah. I don't like peppermint, which I presumed you meant with the traditional stripe one. Sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, the old fashioned like rainbow stripe one that I guess was kind of a cherry flavored. Uh, might be just kind of a makeshift juicy fruit flavor, but I suppose cherry was what they were going for. Uh, th- that would be the go-to candy cane. For myself, I am not super huge on candy canes overall, but I I could do those. I think today, in today's day and age, I'd probably just do the Jelly Belly candy canes, because then you can just choose your fruit flavor that you would like. Now, what flavor of candy cane would you not want to consume? I'm assuming we're going with something more exotic than just peppermint, because I don't like peppermint. (laughs) You can call it exotic, sure. Uh, let's see. An exotic, I, I don't know. I, I suppose if they're, 
if this this company is going if you're leading me where I think you're leading me here let's let's do the birdie bots every flavor beans or what they do now bamboozled right the the jelly belly bamboozled or bean boozled I think is what it's called so how about earwax I would not like to do earwax I would not like to do vomit I'm I'm very much like Dumbledore in that regard earwax and vomit that's heading down the path of extreme we're thinking more domestic here Okay, um, cumin. I would not like to have a cumin-flavored candy cane. That is very specific, but not weirdly specific. (laughs) (laughs) When you you compare a cumin candy cane to what this company, Archie McPhee, has to offer. Now, what really caught my fancy here, and I don't mean by fancy as in, ooh, I gotta buy these candy canes, uh, but just I had to go to this website to see if they had any other types of candy canes that beat this flavor. And the flavor that caught my attention is the Mac and Cheese candy cane. It comes with a set of six yellow and white candy canes, five and a quarter inch tall, <laughs> and with cheesy flavoring. And it says here, comfort food that tastes like comfort food instant mac and cheese flavor and already this item is sold out it is out of stock for this holiday season that is pretty crazy and don't get me wrong by the way folks i like cumin in my food but just thinking of something that would be that raw and smoky but man that's i mean i i guess i get it 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 would definitely be fun and novelty it would look like the starburst or maybe the jelly belly say like lemon flavored candy cane or maybe an orange flavored candy cane so you could feasibly trick someone into at least attempting to consume one but i don't know room temperature mac and cheese that is getting slobbery and nasty like a candy cane can i I don't know i don't know if i would uh, be able to do that sir i don't know well how about one of these other flavors they have have like (laughs) beef wellington hamburger helper maybe let's start (laughs) let's start with the less extreme and move to the more extreme the more i think possibly disgusting Uh, we have bacon candy canes we have the uh, pickle candy canes all right and from here on out it gets stranger the rotisserie chicken candy cane. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then we have Krampus candy canes, a set of six red and black candy canes. Threaten kids into good behavior with these candy canes, it says. Uh, it's packaged so beautifully you might not open them. Five and a quarter inch tall fire and brimstone flavored candy canes. <laughs> Oh, my God. (laughs) But wait, why would you want fire and brimstone candy canes when you can have coal candy canes? Another set of six candy canes, still five and a quarter inches tall, tastes like coal, smoke, and cinnamon. Black and and gay stripes. Black and gray stripes. Lastly here, Matthew... I think this would make a wonderful gag gift. Well, it definitely sounds like it's going to make you gag, so they got that part right. Clamdy cans. 
Set of six gray and white candy canes, five and a quarter inch tall with clammy flavoring. Clams and Christmas together at last. Your whole family will clamor for them. <laughs> Ooh, well, I'll give them, I'll give them bonus points for the puns. Uh, do they offer a variety pack? Perchance. Uh, let's see. They have just regular candies here, little like lozenge candies. I mean, candies. like a variety pack of the candy canes, where you could get like one mac and cheese and one fire and brimstone and one coal. And well, I wish they did, but I'm not. I'm not seeing that here on this website because they also have vegetable candies. They have gravy flavored candy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe the gravy flavored candy nice. and the bacon candy or the no, bacon. No, no, no. You would have to pair the the gravy candy with the rotisserie chicken candy cane. I think is what you'd have to do. If you're interested, we're not getting any payment from this company, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, I and, and you're probably wondering why, since we're spending so much time talking about Archie McPhee's We Make Weird Candy Canes, but uh, we just did. And I hope it brought a little joy into your earbud holes. Well, I since we're sharing things we've discovered this holiday season, I actually stumbled on a pretty cool podcast. And... This podcast is called Christmas Past, just like it would normally be spelled Christmas and then P-A-S-T. Uh, Christmas Past podcast, and you can uh, find them online, podcast directories or whatever. But this podcast is really cool. This guy, he's like an engineer out in California and uh, like a structural engineer or something. And he just really loves Christmas and wanted to do a Christmas podcast. And so he only does like you know, eight to 12 episodes a year. They all come out like November, December. And they're only like the longest one I've ever seen is like 12 minutes. So you get like really fun little history tidbits about certain aspects of Christmas. They cover like mall Santas and Yule logs and um, Christmas cards and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's just a different little subject every time. And it's very simple, wholesome so if you're into Christmas like me, you might enjoy that. Again, I'm not getting, yeah, we're not getting anything for it, but it was pretty cool. Cool. But uh, we've got a show to get to, and Tim has got ultra reviews because with Matt's graduation this weekend, he only had time to do the Netflix stuff, and so Tim was much, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Determined? He, he Yes, he was determined, and he was focused, and he managed to get the movie watching done. So we're going to be uh, getting a lot more out of Tim this week than Matt. <laughs> but uh, regardless, we should definitely jump into our bonus segment. It's our Christmas time version of stuffing ourselves. Everybody knows that the holidays are when you overstuff and overeat for the most part with all the holiday parties and the Thanksgiving meal and the Thanksgiving leftovers and the turkey sandwiches and those continued holiday parties and get-togethers and all the yuletide fun and drinks and stuff. And then you've got the Christmas dinners and all that kind of stuff. And the final holiday parties as you do your New Year's Eve party. So, we couldn't just stick to one double-stuffed edition of Was It Worthy and Did It Age Well. No! Nay! There must be two! Did it age well? Did it age well? And was it worthy, you hunk and hamma-jamma? I'm only three and a half years old. 
Anyway. <laughs> and so that's what we're doing again with our combo. Did it age well? And was it worthy for Schindler's List? By law, I have to tell you, sir, I'm a Jew. Well, I'm a German. So there we are. <laughs> you want these people. My people, I want my people. Who are you, Moses? They say your factory is a haven. They say you are good. Who says that? Everyone. All you have to do is tell me what it's worth to you. What's a person worth? No, 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 no. What's one worth to you? Power is when we have every justification to kill. And we don't. For this is life. Forever saves one life. Saves the world in time. That's right. And so now you have gotten to rehash that trailer. Hopefully you've had a chance to see it. Uh, it has been re-released in theaters for a small uh, theatrical re-release due to its 25th anniversary. And, um, yeah, so we have a 1993 American epic historical period drama films directed and co-produced by Steven Spielberg, written by Steven Zalian, based on the novel Schindler's Ark by Australian novelist Thomas Keneally. And of course, this is following Oscar Schindler, who comes to, um, oh, uh, he comes to, uh, Poland basically to try and, um, set up a business. And he turns out to be very successful in this business using Jewish funds to establish the business so that he can give them supplies and stuff on the back end. And this, of course, makes him very profitable. And it kind of snowballs into him somehow managing to save 1,100 Jews from the Holocaust, single-handedly. And it's a just an amazing film. And so we're going to be talking about that movie. This movie uh, did happen to win. It was nominated for 12 Oscars, and it won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay based on a previously released work, Best Original Score, Best Film Editing, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, all of those at the 66th Academy Awards back in 1993. So, or 1990, yeah, whatever, for 1993. Anyway... Tim, do you want to kick off on this, or are, are you just going to talk, or what? Yeah, let's, what do you think? Let's just have a discussion about it because I mean, this is a movie that I ha- I'm familiar with and I have been familiar with since I was Matt and I were talking about this during the pre-show. Uh, I've been familiar with Schindler's List since I was like six or seven. The movie came out in '93. I was five and a half. It was November of '93, I think, when it came out. So I was like five and a half. Then it was released on HBO or Showtime. A year or two later, and my parents wanted to record it, you know, wanted to tape it on the old VHS player, and 
the time that they chose to tape it was during cartoon time. And like whenever I would go out and play and then come home in the afternoon and watch some afternoon cartoons and go back out and play. And it was a Saturday also. And I came inside and my dad, uh, who worked the night shift, was sleeping and my mom was busy doing something else. So I turned on the TV and it was during the middle part of the film when things really begin to go south. And a lot of the people are moving from the ghetto to the actual camp. Ever since that moment where I saw all the women being stripped down and segregated from their families, being thrown into that, uh, what you think is a gas chamber, into the showers, and also the moment where the little kids are trying to hide, and one little kid had to jump into a latrine pretty much, because that's the only place where he could hide. Those moments in particular just really affected me as a child. Believe it or not, at that time, I had an idea of what was going on. My family on my dad's side is Polish. So growing up, I was aware of the Holocaust and why my great-grandparents moved to the United States, what they ran away from. And of course, they were running away from, from Hitler in the, in the late 30s. And the movie as a whole affected me, even those brief moments that I managed to watch as a kid, and they, they stuck with me for such a long period of time. Also, not just because of the historical aspect, but because of the filmmaking. You know, the film is in black and white. The reason why the film was shot in black and white was because Spielberg knew that the film in color would not ring true. Because everything he knew about the Holocaust, everything he knew about that time, was in black and white. All the old films that he used from references, all the photographs, every single documentary dealing with the Holocaust was in black and white. Modern audiences going into the movie might not take it as seriously. I'm not, I don't want to say maybe not take it as seriously, but maybe there's going to be that misconnection if that film was in color. We as humans, now in the modern day, associate that era being in black and white. So it was a very interesting leap of faith that not only Spielberg took, but even the studio that Universal took. And they ended up, at the end, supported Spielberg in making the film in black and white. There's also the music. John Williams' score is absolutely beautiful, and Liam Neeson's performance is just... It's just fascinating, because he really embodies the mindset of Oscar Schindler, where he ends up kind of stumbling into becoming this leader, this good guy, this savior character. Oscar Schindler was in the business to make money. You know, he was profiting off war. And slowly, he just realized that he just couldn't idly stand by. He had to help out. And as we all know, especially if you've seen the movie, he ended up throwing his money away. And just all those aspects... The story, how the f movie was shot, just always resonated with me. Resonated with me for the past 24 years now. Matt, when was the first time you saw this flick? I saw it, oh golly gee, senior year of high school. They, they showed it in school. You had to sign a release because of the nudity and all that kind of stuff. And not just because of Holocaust nudity, but because of the sex scenes. <clears throat> Um, but, uh, yeah, that was the first time that I had seen it. I didn't really care to go see it in the theater at the time. I, I mean, I was 16 years old. I wasn't as 
appreciative of what the film was going for than anything else. And of course, when it starts winning all these Oscars, I just assumed it was because naively and stupidly, because I was a teenager, I just assumed because it was finally because Steven Spielberg made a serious movie that the Oscars finally wanted to see. Um, and it was, and so when I finally got a chance to see it in, Oh, I want to say, I can't remember if it was in the fall of the spring, fall of 94 or spring of 95. I want, I think it was towards the spring of 95 because it was around, uh, VE day. And that was when I was just kind of like, holy crap. And, and it wasn't even like, Hey, come to this screening. It was, Three full days, three, actually three and a half days of watching this movie because you would watch one hour of it for the class period, come back the next day and so on and so forth. And you just, I mean, it was heavy. It was heavy. And it was one of the first times in my life that I really understood just exactly what the Holocaust was. And we had covered it. Don't get me wrong. We had covered it in world history class and stuff like that. And we had seen a little bit of Holocaust footage and things of that nature. And so it's, it affects you in a different way because I think that Holocaust footage is shocking as it should be, but it is shocking in the way that any kind of gore can be shocking to you, you know, car accident footage or anything of that nature. And so it's hard to contextualize it until you can see it put into a vehicle like a film that doesn't hide from the realities of it. And in my life since, I have seen a lot of different shock videos and a lot of different things. And one of them is the, um, oh, but Bud, Bud Dwyer, I think, or whatever his name was. This is the guy that shot himself in the head on live, on live TV at a news conference back in the seventies. And something that has stuck with me my whole life, I've never been able to unsee, is just the sheer amount of blood that comes from this guy's head after he shoots himself. And Spielberg does not shy away from that. That is something that they purposely show are just jet sprays of blood and fountains and rivers of blood coming from the people after they've been shot. And it's subtle... Because it's in black and white instead of color, which I think lends credence to what you were saying, Tim, about it. But it's also very eerie and riveting in a way because that is really what would have happened to someone. And it's one of the few cases where you are seeing a realistic portrayal of this kind of violence. And it's so simple because you just think, oh, it's a quick shot to the head. And yes, everything's horrible, but that's really how it happened. And it's, and now you've got this story, this narrative being told in, in the, in the film that Spielberg is putting together with these performances that create people that you care about who are now going through this. And then you combine it with that. And it just becomes so much more powerful. Um, so, the, which kind of makes me 
a, a little bit sad. I, I don't know if it's, I would say probably arguably that the only thing that the movie didn't do so well, especially looking back on it with all the additional knowledge and life and everything is that first 20 minutes of the film before Schindler really starts to get a clue and it takes a good 20 minutes and, and he doesn't really do too much about it until about say 45 minutes into the film. That first 20 minutes of the movie where they're trying to give you an idea of the kind of guy that Schindler is, because he's not exactly a good guy. Um, he's not the world's worst person. He's not truly a dedicated Nazi. Just as Tim said, he's just a businessman. And all he wants to do is make money. And that is evident. But I think that... I think they could have either reshot that or resequenced it or, or cut it all, cut it out altogether to just give you something that was established to just say, okay, here's Schindler, you know, a minute or two of exposition about him, people talking around him or something like that. Because I kind of felt like it was the transition we see isn't quite as genuine as it could have been despite Spielberg's attempt in the first 20 minutes to kind of give you an idea of what Schindler's like. And honestly, I would say that's, that's really the only flaw of the film because once you're buying into the narrative, once you're buying into the way these characters are being treated and you can legitimately see that Schindler cares. And I think that the moment that the film truly shifts perspective is when Schindler is spraying down the train with water. And he goes and gets the water hoses. And Ralph Fiennes' character of Geth, I think his name is, um, he sees it. Like, he sees it. He's like, wait, this guy's not being cruel. This guy, like, legit cares for these people. And he has his own internal struggle that is probably more dramatized for film than anything else. But I think it's truly that point that you can see if the fucking Nazis have figured him out. And they don't care because they're in it for the profit and they're in it for, you know, whatever reasons they're going to be. They're sick, twisted reasons. Then you should see it too. And that's the beauty of the film. But there are so many other things that are good about this movie. Like, um, you almost get sucked in to Ralph Fiennes' character and almost see the intoxication of the power that the Nazis had. Not that it's good, not that you should agree, but you can almost find it. Like, when they have the initial discussion about, I pardon you. I pardon thee, right? And they have that, and and Schindler's like, that's true power. It's not killing them because your your violence is indifferent. It's knowing you have the power, and they know that they have nothing. That to you they're worthless, and you spare them. That's the power. And to watch that, he makes a joke about it, and. You And they kind of chuckle and laugh, and you almost start buying in because it's like, holy crap, did I just almost smile at that? 
And then when he touches the mirror later on and he's like, I pardon you. And you're just like, oh my God, this guy, he doesn't, I mean, he literally doesn't get it. And because he's obsessed with the idea of power. Exactly, exactly. But what happens is it's it's unmitigated, unchecked power. Mm -hmm. You can see what happens to someone and you can see just exactly how it is that someone who in another in other ways would probably be a normal human being given that much propaganda given that much power given that much mental gymnastics and twisting can get to where they're like that and i mean it's it's so important on so many levels that this movie is um, rightly considered to be one of the greatest movies of all time. You know, what I, if I had my druthers in a time machine and a way to convince Spielberg, would I have him rework the first 20 minutes? Sure. Does that mean the movie is in any way, shape, or form not one of the best films ever? Uh, no. <laughs> it most certainly is one of the best films ever. And subsequently, I think it's easy to see why not only did this film age well, but it is also completely worthy of all of its wins because I don't think people realize just what kind of movies it was up against. Um, it was up against for best picture, for example, it was up against the fugitive. Yes, that's right. Dr. Richard Kimball, the fugitive. It was up against in the name of the father. It was up against the piano and it was up against the remains of the day. Steven Spielberg, who won for best director was up against again in the name of the father, the piano, the remains of the day and then shortcuts. There were some very decent movies being nominated. Tom Hanks won that year for Philadelphia. As he should have. Yes, and he would go on to win next the next year for Forrest Gump. But he was up against Daniel Day-Lewis again. He was up against uh, Liam Neeson, of course, Anthony Hopkins in The Remains of the Day, and Lawrence Fishburne, what love got, What's Love Got to Do With It? So they... Chose, and this was the move, this was the year that, um, the piano kind of was getting in there for all these interesting wins, Anna Paquin and stuff. But see, that's the thing is that like people love the piano, you know, people, people love love the the piano. piano. And now is the movie, is it a good movie? It's a good movie, but it ain't no Schindler's List and it ain't no Philadelphia. It's just one of those things that I think people were so caught up on what's-his-name's penis, seeing it like 20 times in the movie. <laughs> Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel's <laughs> Keitel. <laughs> Every single thing that Schindler's List was nominated for at least deserved the nomination. Everything it won for it absolutely deserved the Oscar. As much as it would have been cool to have seen Liam Neeson win for Best Actor, Tom Hanks in Philadelphia was wonderful. And I mean, you have to also think about the time as well. Uh, what was happening, you know, with the gay men dying from AIDS. That was still going on in 93 when the movie came out. And it was definitely fresh on a lot of people's minds still. Even with Schindler's List, one of the reasons why Spielberg ultimately wanted to make the movie was because of the rise of neo-Nazism. 
in America and even around the world during the late 80s, early 90s. They weren't just saying their shit and that's it, but media was actually giving them the attention. Spielberg heard about this flick. You know, he's been wanting to make it for at least 10 years or so. And it was actually before The Color Purple, he was optioned to do the movie. And he couldn't do it because at that time, he, his most personal movie was E.T., I mean, he did Jaws, he did Close Encounters, more sci-fi flicks, but he never really did a drama. And it really wasn't until The Color Purple when he thought that, you know, I can actually do a drama. You know, I told a very personal story that now I can move on and try something else. And then one of his next movies, well, he did Always, but that was kind of more so of a romantic comedy, but Empire of the Sun. And I think that film right there really solidified the fact that he could actually pull off and do justice to the history of the Holocaust and do justice to all those who perished during that time. And it was also a journey for... Steven Spielberg. He's Jewish. His family was Jewish. He's heard stories. He's had distant relatives who were affected by the Holocaust. And because of his culture and seeing that rise in hate, you know, in the, in the media, in the news, and amongst Americans, and knowing that he could actually tell these personal stories in a very honorable way, he got the courage to make the film. You know, he felt comfortable. I consider it a masterpiece. I mean, let alone was it worthy or did it age well? I mean, absolutely it did, but this is a masterpiece. It's a pure and honest masterclass in storytelling. When you're watching it, it's one of those movies that comes across as if it's effortlessly made because the drama, the story itself plays out so naturally. It feels like you're actually watching these events take place. I think uh, one performance that I don't think really gets a lot of attention is Ben Kingsley's. Because Ben Kingsley, he plays the accountant who is now, uh, the Jewish accountant who is now working with a German. A Nazi who he thinks is a Nazi sympathizer. And the contempt he has for Schindler at the beginning exactly is unreal. But he can't I mean, show it's, it. It's because he's palpable. afraid. But he does show it. That's the well, thing. He does, it's palpable. But he can't act out on it. Uh, you know, he True. wants to, and you can see it. And he, he doesn't really say anything. You know, Schindler keeps trying to get him to drink with him to have a shot of, you know, whatever, like whiskey, I forget what he's drinking. And Ben Kingsley's character, he will not touch it. He will be cordial to an extent. And it's not really even being cordial. He'll he'll share some of the same error with the guy. <laughs> and it clicks once he realizes what is happening and what he's doing and becomes like a love story in its own way. It's a beautiful film. I think we could easily talk about this for three flipping hours. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think what it was definitely you could see the beginning of the change for Ben Kingsley's character the first time that Schindler rescues him from the train because he forgot his work pass. Right. And you can, you know, he's like, I'm sorry, I forgot. You know, I I was stupid. And Schindler looks at him and you can see it on, like, he's yelling at him. He's like, what if I'd been there five minutes late? Then what? It's like a mother, you know, to their kid. Yeah. And so his words are saying, I'm just a German guy who I just want money and you're pissing me off. 
But the look on his face, you look into his eyes and, and it's not, that's not what he's really saying. He's really saying, Oh my God, you almost died. Please don't die. And that's the part, that's the, the point when you can see Kingsley start changing and, or Kingsley's character start to change. And it's still not overnight. I mean, they, they still kind of wrestle with each other going forward, but up until, of course, the pivotal, the, the list is life scene. And that ending Man, is heartbreaking. God, isn't it? He the, saved, like, he saved he, 1100 people and yet he still feels like he could have saved more because he knows that he started saving them too late. He had so much money, but he wasted millions of dollars or not wasted. I mean, he spent millions of Reichsmark or whatever, uh, that they were calling it. But I think the, the telling scene is when he, is when Kingsley comes in and he's like, do you have any more money stashed anywhere that I don't know about? He's like, no. Am I broke? <laughs> and the look on his face is just kind of like, uh, yeah, you're not only broke, you're completely screwed. And it was, yeah, just God, such a good movie. Such a good movie. And you touched on Ralph Fiennes. He is one of the the most evil characters. And I'm not talking about an evil Disney character. It's just oh God. He, he's such an asshole. He thinks about he doesn't really even think about himself. He just eats and drinks, uses random people as target practice. It's just it's it's awful. And you can see him kind of try to figure out Schindler Oscar Schindler's angle. But it's almost like he doesn't accept it because he just thinks that, oh, no German would, we're the superior race, no German would ever think about doing this. And he never really, like, he catches on to an extent, but I think he thinks that Oscar Schindler more so is trying to screw them with money, not necessarily trying to save the Jews. It's absolutely fascinating. It's it's very, very interesting. The character studies with all these characters is absolutely remarkable. Absolutely. And I will say that uh, Ralph Fiennes very quickly entered my list for favorite villainous actor. Uh, normally, I am... And, and I would still say overall, I would give it to John Lithgow. But, I mean, holy crap. After re-watching this movie and watching Ralph Fiennes, Jesus Christ, this guy's scary. And it gives me a whole new appreciation for, uh, what was it, was it Manhunter? Man, Maneater? The, the sequel. Oh, Red Dragon. Kind of thing. Red Dragon, yeah. The prequel to Science of the Lambs. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Where he, where he plays the serial killer in that. Holy crap. Just, man, guys, gals, people. You've got to see this movie, especially if you haven't. If you're in the younger set and you're just coming up or you are someone who is the millennial class, right? You're you're 25 now. You're 25, 26. Please see this movie. Tim is correct. It is a masterpiece and you must see this film. Um, so I guess we're we're completely in agreement, Tim. Aged well and worthy of all its wins. Thankfully, yes. <laughs> Outstanding. All right. Well, let's see here. So next week we're going to be doing news, and that'll be fun because we haven't done that for a little bit. And I think now it is time for the movies. Is it not, sir? Yes, sir. Here we go, folks. It's.
And this week's movies are Minding the Gap, Crime and Punishment, Shirkers, and Boy Erased. So, Tim, since you were the good student... And you have done the things that you... And you were most steadfast in your commitment to see the films. Would you like to start with Shirkers or end with Shirkers? Yeah, let's uh, let's end with Shirkers. Okay, well then, sir, you you just... You, you do it, sir. <laughs> this is this is Tim's day. This is Tim's baby, everybody. Take it My away. My baby. Uh, the first film I'm going to talk about is the documentary, the Hulu documentary, Minding the Gap. Take one. I'm making this film because I saw myself in your story. I always felt like I didn't fit in with my family. My parents ran this very controlling house. I ran away a lot. Skateboarding is more of a family than my family. How did you get disciplined? I mean, well, they call it child abuse now, but... Life might be moving too fast. We have to fully grow up and it's gonna suck. When you're a kid, you just do, you just act. And then somewhere along the line, everyone loses that. I knew you had some huge weight on you. Skateboarding meant more to you. It was kind of a life or death thing. I remember hearing screaming coming from your room, and it was like really, really unnerving. One of the last things I said to my dad was that I hate you. You can't just have a child and abandon them. Life doesn't work like that. I just don't want him to grow up like me. I just want to hide. I just want to run away. That's what the drinking is about. Maybe you're right. Maybe I need to just move on. I wish you could. I wish then it's, uh, I could do over. I could seriously be on the verge of having a mental breakdown. But as long as I'm able to go skate, I'm completely fine. <laughs> and to make things easier on you, the audience, and me, I'm just going to read you the quick synopsis here on uh, Wikipedia. Mining the Gap is a 2018 documentary film directed by Bing Liu, chronicling the lives and friendships of three young men growing up in Rockford, Illinois, united by their love of skateboarding. Pretty much this movie is about this guy named Bing, who growing up with these kids, his I guess they considered themselves best friends growing up, he would always film them skateboarding. And they're all from different sides of this poorer class, I suppose, because the city of Rockford, Illinois, isn't the most wealthy of cities, especially in Illinois. And it actually has one of like the highest murder rate and domestic violence rate in a city with under 200,000 people living in it. Bing Liu is probably the more successful of the friends became a, I think like a cinematographer and a camera handler, and he shot other documentaries and films. This documentary was shot over the course of, I believe it was 10 or 12 years. He goes in depth with each of his friends about what influenced them to become who they are currently. One of them feels like he has to get out of this city to get out of the poorhouse. 
The other one has a run-in with physical violence with his girlfriend, and being Louis the director wants to figure out if having a violent past or a violent family member growing up influenced this. The movie itself is very interesting, and there's like four or five friends that he chronicles during this time, and he finds a way to interconnect them, showing how living in poverty in the wrong part of town within a family that suffers domestic violence, or if you have parents that just do a lot of drugs or abuse alcohol, you can see it coming back into your lives within yourself later on in life. It's a very interesting documentary, although I don't think it's as great of a documentary as what people are heralding it as. I think the overall message of the documentary is absolutely poignant, and with that by itself, it's worth checking out. I just really didn't see myself meshing well with, I think it's Zach. I could be completely wrong. He is kind of a lowlife. I know it's really not my place to really call out somebody... Uh, in this documentary, but it's just somebody that I don't really have any feelings for at all. I mean, you have people that are in certain situations, whether it can be poverty or abuse, as in they're being abused, and they can't do anything about it. And then you have this other character, again, his name's Zach, who has kind of screwed himself over. He's a chronic drinker, a drug taker. He knocked up a girlfriend, and he doesn't, at least for most of the documentary, he doesn't really help take care of the son. He fights with the girlfriend. You don't really know if the girlfriend is being is the issue or if he's the issue. Uh, he moves away. He just makes really poor decisions. You just can't... And the movie really doesn't show you if he actually changes or not. So you're just left with that taste in your mouth of... You know, next to his other friends, this guy, you know, nobody wants to be like this guy. And that's all I'll say about it. But do check it out. It's called Minding the Gap, and it is on Hulu. I give it a whopping 3.5 out of 5. People are saying that it's going to be an Oscar contender for Best Documentary this year. So do check it out if you can. Next up is another Hulu original documentary, and it is called Crime and Punishment. The department says there are no quotas. Well, I can tell you there are quotas in the NYPD. Truly explosive allegations. They're coming from police officers who are part of what's being called the NYPD 12, who filed a class action lawsuit in federal court. This is not just another lawsuit. 12 cops willing to step up like this, because you're not going to get this again for 100 years. Hold it for one quick second. Now to record. From the beginning, I saw how this job was. It was not about helping people. It's about numbers. Who's targeted most? The minority community. Boom. And all this got dismissed. All this got dismissed. Once you start getting arrested, it goes in your record. They're taking away jobs that they could be future lawyers, future cops. Supervisors that are using police officers as a revenue-producing agent for the city. This system has to change. We all put our jobs on the line. We put everything on the line. This is something that was placed on my desk. You're still a police officer. And there are people in our community that don't work with police officers, period. This is David versus Goliath. Without public support, we're nothing. How long do you think you're going to keep the powder keg happy? I believe in struggle, and with struggle comes change. Can the NYPD be what cops are supposed to be? 
And according to IMDb, Crime and Punishment is about a group of brave NYPD officers who risk it all to expose the truth about illegal quota practices in police departments. And they started making this documentary back in 2014. And I don't know if any of you have paid attention to the news within the past couple years or not. It is illegal for police officers in New York to work off a quota. But they, of course, find a way to enforce a quota without, you know, enforcing a quota. It's very interesting. And it talks about how you can't really be, or these cops who came out, can't really be the type of good cop that they want to be. You know, they cannot interact with some of the inner city kids and come across as a friend, come across as an authority figure that you can trust, count on, go to for help. They feel like they can't do it because in order for the department and I guess the city to raise money, they have to book people and they have to give out tickets for those who really didn't commit any crime whatsoever. This is probably the better of the three documentaries that were reviewing this week. It's one of those expose documentaries, and I could see this one definitely being nominated. It's uh, it's it's just a fantastic and honorable story about these police officers who are putting not just their careers, but their livelihoods on the line, because once you come out against the officers in the department that you work for, you can't really go back if you don't win, you know? So there's a lot at stake for these guys, and it's a wonderful story, especially if you don't know the outcome already. And that, again, was Crime and Punishment, the Hulu original documentary. And then lastly here, Boy Erased. As far as I can tell, we've only got one God-given right. That is when a man and a woman come together, they may create life. I broke up with Chloe because God help me. Because I think it's true about me. It's a choice. You cannot be born gay. Empty your pockets. Do you have any numbers or photos we should be concerned about? You must be the preacher's son. Mother and I, we cannot see a way that you can live under this roof if you're going to fundamentally go against God. Your father signed you up for a program to fix you. Is this a manly shape I'm making? They're going to do things for you. I don't know that college is really the best thing for you. A year with us may be a much better use of your time. I imagine that God and the devil are having a bet over me. You believe in the devil? Does he look like me? Just sit. Where is all this anger coming because from? Because you're making me angry. Hey. You're all crazy. Mom, what's the matter? Please, what? I'm in trouble. Mom, Open the door up. now. You may have to walk away from everything, everyone. A mother knows when something is right. With my beliefs, I may have set myself up to lose you. And I've had to ask myself if I'm ready for that. Whatever happens next, it is still your choice.
via Wikipedia, Boy Erased is a 2018 American biographical drama film based on Jared Connolly's 2016 memoir of the same name. It is written for the screen and directed by Joel Edgerton, who also produced with Carrie Kohansky, Roberts, and Steve Golan. The film stars Lucas Hedges, Nicole Kidman, Russell Crowe, and Joel Edgerton, and it follows the son of Baptist parents who is forced to take part in a gay conversion therapy program. And the catch here is that they don't mention in the synopsis, in the brief synopsis, is that Russell Crowe plays a reverend, and he is the father of Lucas Hedges' character of Jared uh, Connolly, who has come out to them as being gay. This is a very good movie. It's not the heart-wrenching, chest-pounding tearjerker that I think a lot of us were expecting, given the trailer. But it is a story that is effortlessly told. It is played out as if you're watching exactly what happened. Now, somebody or something necessarily doesn't have to be outright evil to be acknowledged as evil. And what this boy goes through... What this young man goes through with the conversion therapy. Now, they're not outright evil. Like with a lot of things with the church, I'm not saying everything, but there are certain things where they manipulate younger minds or minds that are not as strong to get you to do things to benefit the church that maybe you should not do. For example, I remember when my parents first got divorced, I started going to church with my mom and I was in high school. And basically the preacher came out and said, if you do not give the church a portion of your paycheck, you are a sinner. You are a sinner. I don't even, I wouldn't even consider my kids, my kids, if they didn't do this very same thing. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how little money you have. You have to put some of your paycheck every week towards the church. And there's like a sugar coating. I knew it was wrong, but a lot of others in the church didn't see it that way. And this movie with that mindset follows kind of that same style. There's a lot of manipulation involved. At the same time, all the characters in here that are there for being gay, they're saying that, you know what, if you say out loud that you want to change, God's going to love you, God's going to have your back, and you know what, you will change. But that's not what happens, though, is it? Not at all. It's conversion therapy. You know, some horrible things have to happen to where you basically have to fake it until you make it. (laughs) That does more harm than it does good. There's a high risk of you losing sight of who you really are. And it's just going to come back to bite you in the ass later on down the road. I give it a 4.5 out of 5. Guys, go check it out. Nicole Kidman gives a great performance, as does Lucas Hedges. We've seen him a lot lately, and he does not disappoint in this role. And Russell Crowe is even great as well. He plays a very powerful and very flawed character. So do check it out. Boy Erase. I'm excited to see Joel Edgerton's next film. He, of course, did The Gift a couple years ago, the Jason Bateman movie. We have another fantastic actor-director. Very cool. All right, so I didn't actually hear the ratings for Mind the Gap and Crime and Punishment. I gave Minding the Gap a 3.5, and I'm giving Crime and Punishment a 4.5. Excellent. Excellent. Now we're caught up. 
All right. Well, then that, I guess, just leaves us with Shirkers. So here we go. When I was 18, the thing I wanted more than anything was to make a movie. I had the idea that you found freedom by building worlds inside your head. That you had to go backwards in order to go forwards. But I never imagined it would end this way. Whenever you're ready. Now. In the summer of 1992, my friends and I shot a road movie on the streets of Singapore called Shirkers. I was the screenwriter and played the heroine, a 16-year-old killer named S. Did you feel it was childish? Yeah, but that was the beauty of it, right? Our passion and our earnestness came through. Sophie was the producer, Jasmine was the editor, George was the director. I chose George as my new best friend. A man of unplaceable age and origin. After shooting Rat, he took everything. George was gone. And so was Shirkers. George had this perverse need to create mythology. Give us the material so we can finish the film. How could it have disappeared? What stakes did he have in this mind game? Well, I've known that we're connected. That we're partners in crime. Shirkus became a secret history that would haunt us and bond us forever. All right, folks. It's a 2018 documentary film by Singapore-born filmmaker Sandy Tan. And basically, this is the story of Sandy and some of her friends who got together to make a movie with a mysterious benefactor, question mark, um, in terms of experience and expertise and know-how, not exactly in terms of money. And they decide to shoot this film that they call Shirkers, about a, 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 a kind of a quirky, murdery spree, road trippy film. <laughs> um, after the, after they finished shooting, they go, um, oh gosh, Sandy and her, I can't think of her friend's name, um, they decide to split up. Uh, one of them goes to America. One of them goes to Europe, and um, and not like for necessarily any kind of bad reason. Just you know, whatever they had to. They were doing separate things, and this Cardona guy takes off with the footage, and then literally just kind of disappears off the face of the planet. Um, until about six or seven years ago when this guy dies and then his wife kind of calls out of the blue and is like um so i've got this footage and she's like say what and it's basically the vast majority of the footage of the film but no audio and so she kind of puts this back together and then is telling the story as a documentary of how the film got made, what their lives were like, why they made the film, all this kind of stuff. And so the film in and of itself is um, really, 
I don't want to say it's existential. It's not quite art house, but in a way, it is very like Andy Warhol-esque. And I think that's done to show two things. One, what it was like for them in Singapore in 1992. And the ideas that they thought were avant-garde and were up and coming and were the things that could really showcase who they were trying to be. But also to show what Sandy has done kind of with her life since and her abilities and her ability to say, I, I've still got it. And, and who's to really say if this thing had ever, you know, gotten legs, would she be where she is now? Well, of course. I mean, that's, that's to say, if I had kissed Sandy in the fourth grade, would I be here today? Right. If, if I, if I had taken a left, uh, you know, after my graduation dinner, instead of a right at the lights, would I be here to, you know, it's, that question is kind of neither here nor there, but to see the effect that this film had on their lives released or not has, is interesting. And sometimes I think this movie demonstrates that it's the value of the journey, not necessarily the destination. I think the only thing that really kind of blahs out the film is they, is Sandy deliberately tries to put more intrigue and more mis, mis, mystery, mystery, I can talk, I promise. More mystery into this Cardona dude. You know, sometimes people are just shitheads. And this seems to be one of those instances. I don't think that there's really more to that aspect of it than is, than is necessary to portray. But then again, it's pretty obvious that for Tan, this is this is cathartic, and so maybe she had some things she had to work through. But for me, it kind of it really kind of slows the movie down. So I give this one a four out of five. It, I mean, honestly, I really wish. I think I'm just gonna have to go back. Well, I'm, I mean, if it ends up getting nominated, I'm absolutely gonna have to go back. But for me, the one I really feel like I missed was Crime and Punishment. I definitely gonna have to go track this down because I really want to you know see what it was about but it's very interesting you, yeah I sure think no, like absolutely i mean you sold me yeah you absolutely sold me uh, but i think on the whole shirkers is a very good movie and i think for what it is and what it's trying to say it does the job well four stars out of five bring us home to well question do you think Yo. the movie shirkers the movie that they made. Right, the original movie. Yeah. Right, yeah. Do you think it would have actually been good or as good as what they were saying it was going to no. be? No. Right. And that's the thing. I mean, we don't we, – we'll never really know. We'll yeah. never really know because what we're – even what we're seeing – of the footage is what's left of the footage. Granted, it's, I mean, it's basically all of it, not 100% of it, but for all intents and purposes, let's just say it's the film. It's been recut and presented to us in the lens of a documentary by people who have the, who have the ability to go back and realize what was good and what wasn't. Right. And that's what we're seeing. 
and that's the movie. That's the version of the movie we're being presented. We're getting the story. I'm not saying that they're being disingenuous by telling us something that didn't happen in their misadventures of filming of, of the actual shoot, because that's very clearly represented. But the end product is something that's being given to us 26 years later by someone with a greater degree of experience than she ever had at the time that the film was made. So I don't, I truly don't think that it would have been as good. But I mean, we'll never know. We'll never know because how much of what she's re, repackaging for us, which is hers to repackage and hers to tell, is based on what Cordona, uh, Cardona shot. And a lot of it, as right? you find out, he ripped it off from like French movies. He did. But. I mean, ripped off, inspired by, what have you. Again, it, it's. I mean, a couple maybe of them were what, definitely. And maybe that's why. And maybe that's why he ran off. Maybe it would have been too obviously pulled from the style that it would have looked like he was directly copying a particular French director, and that would have caused a lot more problems than it was worth. And maybe that's why he ran off. I don't know, but. We also only have that from the vantage point of 2017, basically, um, when the film was put together. And, and that in and of itself kind of colors the context with which we can know or not know if that 1992 version of the movie would have been any good. And I, I don't, I don't think it would have been as spectacular as, as is implied. Now, I could be wrong, but then again, we also have the beauty of being able to say we'll never know either. I think that, but for me, the key is that what we're seeing is a woman who is 26 years older and has those sensibilities. Isn't she like a film critic now? Something? I don't remember. Okay, I, I think I well, she did. Sworn... She did that for a while. Yeah, she wrote. Yeah, she was like a film critic for a newspaper or some magazine. I don't know if she still does that anymore or not. Okay, yeah. From uh, says here. Now I'm just pulling from Wikipedia here real quick. Uh, film critic for Straits Times from 1995 to 97, and then went to Columbia University's film school. And she did. She was a short film director. Um. So and also an author. So, um. You know, uh, so she's had a lot of experiences since then that have just been able to inform her ability to make this movie. And it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's absolutely not a bad thing. And I don't want to frame it in such a way that I'm intimating that I'm, that that I disbelieve her or that I'm, I'm lacking in, uh, the logic of where she's coming from. But, I think that we have to acknowledge that this film was made by a 40-year-old woman, not the 16, 14, 16-year-old girl who, who made the, who made the original film. Right. And I think what really had, what was really going for the film Shirkers, you know, the one that they made, apparently, it, it, it had a very interesting, distinct, visual style to it it was heavily influenced by the uh the the french new wave of films from the Mm -hmm. from the 60s at this time in 1990 91 
it would have been something different and, and interesting, I think. And I think it would have probably got a little bit of attention from film buffs. That would probably be it. Like, it was something unique, it was something different, and maybe it would have gone and inspired more films to be shot and to come out of uh, out of Singapore. Because, man, the views, you know, the scenery there from the early 90s in Singapore was absolutely amazing. It was beautiful, 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 beautiful. But with the pedestal that this movie was put upon by all these critics, people that were involved with the film. And it's funny. So some of her friends, they were more so criticizing working with her (laughs) than they were Hmm. talking about how amazing the film would have turned out. They were doing it more of like a hobby and having a good time. And it seemed like more thought was going into the visual style of it. And then more thought was also going into the philosophical nature of the film you know there's more going on than what meets the eye than what's actually being told to you and it might have just been artsy for the sake of being artsy because if you look at the documentary director and the writer and main actress of shirkers and then you look at george the older director the older guy that was helping him out they were very pompous and they had that weird Early 90s, I know everything, and we have to instill some kind of form of ridiculous philosophical knowledge into something where it necessarily doesn't need it. I think it's because of that and all these people kind of putting it up on a pedestal. I don't think it would have been this great behemoth of a classic nowadays that they thought it would have become. I give the documentary a four out of five. It's a visually interesting documentary. It's something that I haven't really seen before. Although it does feel at times like that there's some like filler in there to make the movie, to make the documentary come across more interesting and more riveting than it actually is. It felt like it was more therapeutic for those involved than really anything else. So four out of five for me. Right on, right on. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of the flicks, and next week's movies are going to be The Favorite, The Mule, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. So, without further ado, I guess it is now down to the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! Oh, Stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, good. He said that he's in great pain, and he wants to know if you can help him. All right, would you tell him to just relax and I'll be back as soon as I can with some medicine? Just hang loose, blood. She's gonna catch up on the rebound on the med side. What it is, big mama? My mama raised no dummies. I duck her rap. Cut me some slack, Jack. It's it's a a cutting cutting say cutting say 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 Chomp the one to help, chomp don't get the help. Say can't hang, say seven up. Jive ass dude don't got no brains in it. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down to on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. As always, we hope that you will subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down in the old SoundCloud and any of the other podcast directories. 
Spooky you can find us on. If you'd like to support the show, please head on over to Patreon.com and check us out there. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to John Williams, I get to say this. So much of what we do is ephemeral and quickly forgotten, even by ourselves. So it's gratifying to have something you have done linger in people's memories. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.